What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilczek. This week, I'm speaking with Nicole Badera, a doctoral candidate at the University of Michigan whose research focuses on campus sexual violence, including men's reactions to consent policies, queer women's experiences of sexual violence, and most recently, the way organizations impact the experience of violence and trauma. This is episode 53 of Untenured Tracks. graduate school has been to do the stuff that you have to get done during the semester and spend the summers doing the projects that I wish I had more time for. And so that's the place that I'm at, is I haven't really touched much of my dissertation in a couple of months. I've been taking a break and I have been working with actually my undergraduate advisor and now like colleague, and we've been doing research together for years at this point, but her name is Christine Nordmeyer, and we conducted interviews in between 2016 and 2018 about queer women's experiences with sexual violence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that has been the main thing I've been thinking about this summer. Um, we published an article last year, sorry, earlier this year. It's been a long year. <laughs> I know, time doesn't, um, doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> I know, there's no time anymore. Uh, but we published an article earlier this year sort of explaining why the rates of sexual violence are really high in queer women's communities, especially for bisexual women. And the previous research sort of answered it in a really simple way. They said, you know, why are the rates so high? And they just said, well, uh, queer identified people in general, and especially women, they drink more, they do more drugs, and they have more sexual partners. So those are risky behaviors. That must be it. But I've always taken issue with that research, in one part because that's sort of inherently victim blaming to say you've been sexually assaulted because of your own behavior. But the other component is that I don't think it's actually great science and I understand why it happened. Mm-hmm. Most of this research comes from cross-sectional data sets mm-hmm. because that's what's available. And so what they see is that among victims of sexual assault in general, they have more sexual partners, perhaps if they include their assailant on that list that would artificially increase the numbers. Yeah. Um, They also drink more and use more drugs in general. But we know that all of these responses, um, they could be responses to trauma as opposed to causes of trauma. And so um, what Christine and I did is we just decided to do a very grounded theory, open approach of asking queer survivors to share their stories. Mm -hmm. And we literally had seven questions in our entire interview guide. And we just wanted them to talk. And we would ask follow-up questions to make sure we were understanding what they were saying. Mm -hmm. But in general, it was very, very open-ended. And Mm -hmm. so the paper that's come out already is addressing why. Why are they being sexually assaulted at higher rates? And one of the things we really wanted to do was position survivors as experts on sexual violence. In my dissertation work, I work with perpetrators, too. Uh And so for my dissertation... I used a triangulated ethnographic and interview-based data approach where I interviewed victims, perpetrators, and college administrators about Title IX processes. Mm -hmm. I also did ethnographic research where I was sitting in on meetings that I could sit in on that are not protected under FERPA. Mm -hmm. And I read everything I could get my hands on. Newspaper articles about the school I was studying, um, university's documents around Title IX and sexual assault, as well as a number of students shared their actual Title IX complaints and all uh-huh. the evidence of things like that with me too. And one thing I learned from that project is that perpetrators lie, which is perhaps not surprising. And so one of the things I wanted to do in this project, based off of my experience with um, people who've been accused of sexual assault, sort of padding their stories, um, even in ways that you can put in front of them and say, I can see here that you wrote something different on this day, um, and that's not exactly what you said here. Um, I started to ask, you know, who are the real experts on sexual violence? And survivors is who I came up with. And so what we did in this study is we looked at things that they remembered their perpetrators saying to them during their assaults. And, you know, these survivors don't know each other. 
They have no idea the sorts of things that their perpetrators are supposed to be saying to fit some cultural narrative because sexual violence isn't something that people talk about with each other, especially yeah. in this period of time. When we started collecting data, it was 2016. Yeah. And so Me Too hadn't happened yet. Yeah. And so a number of our participants had literally never told a single person that they'd yeah. been sexually assaulted. We were the first people. Can I ask you, what what do you yeah. mean by padding their stories? Way that Ways that perpetrators are padding their stories. Yeah. What does that mean? Um, well, they pick up on cultural narratives that sort of make us more comfortable with sexual violence. Mm-hmm. So one thing that they'll do is they'll just sort of glaze over places where people said no to them and instead say that it's either a misunderstanding or that they got a yes earlier on. They'll make a big deal out of details that don't really matter, but, you know, sort of fit into our cultural cultural narratives around victim blaming. Mm -hmm. So, for example, one of the perpetrators, I didn't interview him specifically, but I saw the documents around his case. Um, He argued that the violence that he perpetrated was consensual sex because the victim removed her own earrings, but she was incapacitated and unconscious at the time of the sexual content. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I mean by padding the stories. <laughs> yeah. Sort of focusing on these details that are sort of irrelevant, but because of the views that we culturally hold about women and sexual assault victims, asking for it or deserving to be assaulted if they were doing things like drinking or wearing provocative clothing, they can really hone in on that. Yeah. Um, the other thing that this makes me think of, and this is not from my research, but there's a study actually from the 80s by Scully and Marola where they they were studying incarcerated rapists. Yep. And, you know, they found that two-thirds of them did not think that they had sexually assaulted anyone. And it was the same sort of thing. Like, yes, I kidnapped this woman off the street, but she yeah. made eye contact with me and made conversation with me once we yeah. got to the location. So I think this was consensual. And so it's that kind of padding and rationalizing the story. Yeah, and yeah. so the, the rhetoric around why sexual violence happens gets really obscured yeah. when people are trying to make themselves look as good as possible. Um, yeah, I've taught the Scully, I taught the Scully Morella piece before when I taught Deviance, and, and it's just fascinating, right? Because um, the one that stands out to me is the the one from like the Seven Eleven, right? Where he's he's like like violently um, attacks the woman working at the store and is like, "I did her a favor. Like, why am I in trouble for this?" And like just like yeah. thinking about ways that that kind of <laughs> like the ability to kind of rationalize that level of violence and like trying to trace it to like specific points beyond like we live in a culture of toxic masculinity like we do but there are there are certainly points of transmission right where that kind of ability to rationalize has to happen um it's just i mean it's terrifying to think about but i mean obviously terrifying to think about i mean to tell you that but (laughs) (laughs) But yeah the rationalization is such an important part of it i think in general we do want to see ourselves as good people. And whenever I think about why perpetrators rationalize, Mm -hmm. I think about the best question I have ever been asked by a fraternity member. When I used to, early on in my grad school career, I was volunteering with an organization that did um, sexual assault prevention trainings with Greek life. Mm -hmm. And I also was doing research about how men either do or do not get consent actively mm-hmm. in their sexual encounters, how much they're thinking about it, or how much they sort of, sort of presume that they're, what they're doing is okay, mm-hmm. and that they're entitled to what is happening. And so in the context of this work, a victim on campus reached out to me and said that she'd been raped in a fraternity, and that she just, she didn't want to go through the whole criminal justice process or even a Title IX process. What she wanted was just her perpetrator to get information about why what he did was wrong. Mm-hmm. So I go into this fraternity um, as one of two women present, like in the basement of this fraternity, surrounded by like 30 fraternity men, um, which was how so much of my time was spent at that period of my life. And I didn't really know how to pretend that I wasn't there for the reason that I was. Yeah. And so I decided to just be honest with them. And I said, okay, I know that this is based off of the school you're at, probably your fourth or fifth consent training this year. You probably wonder why you're here. <laughs> We're frustrated. Well, I'm here because one of you raped someone. Yeah. And based off of, I'm a sexual violence researcher, and based off of what we, what we know, men who commit acts of violence against women travel in packs. Mm-hmm. So if one of you has raped someone, more of you probably have, which is why the rest of you are here. Mm-hmm. And 
at that point, the fraternity president stood up and was like, I know about this. I want you all here. You better pay attention. And I don't know that this would have gone so well without that endorsement from him. Yeah. But he asked me, so I do like my little thing on what consent is and what's what's not. And at the end, he asked me just the best question I've ever been asked, which was, what do you do if you have sex with someone? And then the next day she says that she felt assaulted. Uh-huh. And it, it kind of stopped me in my tracks. And it led me to my research interests mm-hmm. around, <laughs> I mean, really everything that has to do with um, what happens in the aftermath of violence. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm really interested in with my research. And... I mean, the response we usually give men in that situation is like, just don't do it. Yeah. Don't put yourself in that situation. The advice that I gave instead was, you know, something that I think is, oh, my cat is appearing. But but the advice that I ended up giving instead was that sexual violence isn't over when the rape is finished. Mm -hmm. The harms of sexual violence extend through the ways that people respond to victims, Mm -hmm. whether or not they're believed, how they're treated, when they get their sense of humanity back. And so the advice that I gave was do what's best for the victim. Don't shame her. Don't retaliate against her. Don't try to silence her. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell her you're sorry. And I know that's not the advice that people want to hear from a criminal justice perspective, right? But when it comes from a human perspective, what's actually best for survivors, and knowing how few victims report anyway, mm-hmm. I do think that if we were taking the right approach to sexual violence, that's what we would do. It would be about, okay, I can take accountability. I don't need to rationalize. I don't need to pretend. But one of the reasons that I think men rationalize acts of sexual violence so much is because we're all so uncomfortable talking to them about it, and we don't give them another option. Mm-hmm. We don't give them another option. We don't know what to do after a rape has taken place. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, like, we as much as we try to push back against, like, young men being socialized to be, like, subhuman, (laughs) (laughs) uh, we we then turn around and don't give, like, a lot of college-age men, like, the opportunity to prove their own humanity, right? So, like, instances like this happen, and we're like, oh my god, like, I bet it was a jock, like, what are we gonna do, this kid, like, how are we supposed to handle this, um, et cetera, et cetera, and just, like, default to, like, this guy's just some caveman, right? right? And then, and so, even though we've been trained better, like, we still fall back on, like, you know, this is just some dumb animal that did this. <laughs> and, and so, like, like any other animal, we're just going to, like, whack them on the nose and say, don't do it again. But, like, that doesn't give them any opportunity to grow. And it's, it's, I like that you said, too, from a criminal justice perspective, that, like, there are probably people who might disagree <laughs> with that. Yeah, definitely. But, like, you know, if we want violence to go away, like, we, we can't... I don't know, it's just interesting that from some victimology circles, we see, like... Or from some, like, reform circles, right? We talk about how we need to recognize that, that you're not the worst mistake that you ever made, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but then there's another branch, and maybe even some reformers, who, like, turn around and say the complete opposite whenever sexual violence happens, and say, no, this person did this terrible thing and they should be locked up forever, chemically castrated, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But like what happened to the whole, you're not the worst thing you ever did rhetoric <laughs> that right. you're talking about a minute ago. You know, why, right. why is it that people who have committed sexual violence are not afforded that same opportunity to like reclaim their own humanity? You know? Well, I think, I think it's complicated because to some degree, we, we don't even ask them to do that, right? Yeah. In, in the vast majority of cases of sexual violence, we're not locking people up yeah. for the rest of their yep. lives. We're not shunning them from society. In fact, um, the first time, I guess not the first time, but one of the times that I went viral on Twitter, it was around this thread about this this idea that rape allegations ruin men's lives. And Harvey Weinstein's lawyer was the one who said it. And I just, I, I think all of the feminists sort of exploded that day. We're like, really, Harvey Weinstein, you're going to say your life is ruined yeah. after what you've done to so many people. Yeah. And you're going to say that from like the luxury, you know, rehabilitation center, spa, play, you know, like yep. wherever yep. It is they send people like you these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's where he went, but I know the number of the other men who've been, you know, quote unquote, yep. and that's where they ended up. Yep. And um, I wrote a thread about how that actually looked at my dissertation research. And I found that this myth that sexual violence ruins men's lives was used as a rationale for not doing anything, for not doing anything to them. And so 
I was interviewing administrators, and most of this data came from administrators who would say, you know, um, this is actually the third paper of my dissertation. Uh-huh. Um, they would say, well, what's happened to the victim is already done. Yeah. It's too late. We can't do anything to fix it. We have the opportunity here to not ruin a second life. And then they would use that as a rationalization for not holding, I mean, we're talking about serial rapists on campus yeah. accountable for what they're doing. And so it was it was a weird contortion of time on a basic level of, okay, you're acting as if the sexual assault happened in a vacuum, it's over, and there's nothing happens if we don't intervene on this man's behavior. He's just going to go back to a neutral life, which is not at all the case, um, especially with the types of perpetrators that end up going through Title IX most often, they tend to be serial perpetrators. At least they were in my field site. We don't have a ton of you know quantitative data on this, but the people whose names I saw coming up, they came up time and time again, and I think a lot of Title IX stuff would tell you, like, yeah, we keep seeing the same person over and over and over again. Um, so the idea of if we do nothing, it'll go back to neutral doesn't exist. It's a fallacy. And then, and so, um, coming back to what I said before, so is the idea that a victim's life, it's, it's determined. She's ruined and broken and damaged forever, yeah. and, and that's it. Um, and I say she very intentionally because when the victims were men, they weren't treated that way. They weren't treated as if their life was useless. Mm-hmm. They weren't treated as if, you know, there was no hope for them. They got more resources than women who were going through Title IX processes. People were really bending over backwards to make them comfortable and to restore them to the lives that they thought that they deserved, just in ways that I didn't see when women were victims mm-hmm. in the field. So, it's all very gendered. Yeah. It's absolutely gendered. And you could say the same thing for the perpetrators, too. When the person who accused of some kind of sexual misconduct was a woman, they didn't get the same kind of, oh, we don't want to ruin their life thing. There was one woman in particular. She was a staff member at the university. She was fired without any kind of process at all. And she actually ended up in Title IX through a wrongful termination suit because she was like, I'm pretty sure there's a process you're supposed to go through. And to make this case, I mean, to get the gender dynamics even more on display, the person who accused her of sexual assault was actually her assailant who was trying to detract from he got caught slashing her tires at work. And so to give a rationalization for why he had been slashing her tires and why that was okay behavior, he, um, he said that she'd sexually assaulted him. But his definition of sexual assault in that case was um, they, they had been into a partners, they got into an argument, and... She, he had told her to sleep on the couch, and partway through the night, she got into bed, and that's it. There was no touching, there was no interaction. And so, when you look into some of these stories, they, they just get more and more gendered than even I expected as someone yeah. who came to graduate school to become a gender scholar. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's such a bad faith. Like, at first I thought, well, that's like an extreme example of, like, padding a story, but that's, like, such a bad faith accusation. Right. Yes. Well, and that's what I found, is that the only false allegations that at least I was privy to in my field site were retaliatory allegations made by men trying to cover their own behavior, yeah. right? It's like one of, the, uh, one of the perpetrators who was in the study came into the study actually as a victim because he had been accused of intimate partner violence by his wife. Mm-hmm. And then he used the fact that she had physically fought back against him mm-hmm. as proof of being like, well, according to the policy, doesn't that technically make her an abuser of me? And with the way the policies are written, he's not wrong. Yeah. They're yep. neutral. <laughs> it's not wrong. And this is an issue that we see in domestic violence scholarship in general. Yep. Is it all shows the same way on a survey. And so... But it was clearly made in bad faith, though. And he, the entire time I talked to him about it, was saying, I don't really want to go through with this, and if she'll drop her allegation, I'll drop mine. Which shows you what the point of making it was. Yeah. It was to protect himself, right? Yep. There are people listening to this right now who are probably screaming, like, conflict tactic survey is, is bad. <laughs> <laughs> and they should be. <laughs> they should be. I'm amazed by how broadly the conflict tactic survey is still used. Yep. Even though we know that it's bad. Yeah. Oh, totally bad. And, like, the whole, like, all of the data from it. And, like, I, I just dislike, like, we I've been teaching now for 10 years, more than 10 years. And I, I took a domestic violence class at my first grad school 15 years ago. <laughs> and I, yeah. still, I still can't teach, like, this is a rough estimation of how much intimate partner violence actually happens because the conflict tactic scale has completely borked it for everybody, right? 
I can't say like people will will scream it's fifty percent that men and men and women are are victimized at an equal rate, but we know that's not true. And yeah, we because know it's not of true. The, because of the stupid scale. <laughs> yeah, we know it's not true. I went to a conference that was specifically on the topic of gender based violence. Yeah, and the participants were basically split between people who still use the conflict conflict tactic scale and people who were so angry that people were still using the conflict tactic scale. And I, that was the first time sitting around in this room that I realized how widely used some of these debunked methods. Like they're still around. Yeah. Uh, when I learned about the conflict tactic scale, I was TAing for a criminology class. And I was like, wait, I mean, this article we're reading about how it's bad is from like the 80s. <laughs> like, it's really old. I didn't realize people were still using it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But they are. It's, it's just become one of those things, right? Like, I think every, like, subtopic or, like, research field probably has, like, bad science that's still being perpetuated um, that we all know is, like, bad, um, including theories, right? Like, there are, there are theories that are taught in intro criminology books that are bad, that right. we know are bad, but people are like, well, it's important that students know the history of the field. So... Like, but there are other things we could talk about the history of the field that I would argue are way right. more valuable than like theories X, Y, and Z that don't don't matter that students aren't going to use for their capstones because we wouldn't let them. So what's the point, right? right? It's like it's almost like the equivalent of being like, well, you should watch Fox News <laughs> just to see, <laughs> just to <laughs> see. Yeah, no, you shouldn't. You absolutely should not watch Fox News. <laughs> there is no justification for it. Uh, but like, but yet there are still there are still people who do, and and will say, well, it's important to see what the other side is saying. But then you're still like you're giving them ratings and you're giving their advertisers dollars, and don't do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't well, do I think that. sexual violence is such a good example of how this plays out because I remember uh, right before I started grad school, a friend of mine. It, it was like going away party season, and so it's like a family party, yep. saying goodbye to people, like going to all of you know, wherever they're going for grad school or jobs or whatever. And, you know, the parents is asking, so like, what do you want to do when you go to graduate school? And I said, well, I want to study sexual violence. And the goal is to eradicate rape, to participate in that process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be, that's the cause. Yeah. <laughs> to graduate school for. And my friend's father said, don't you think that's proof that you're not an objective scientist anymore. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He was like, well, you're taking a position that rape is wrong. And I was just like, what do you, what other position is there? That rape is right? That rape is neutral? Like, and, and I really think that the way that we talk about sexual violence, it's true, you can look at these more neutral approaches to studying sexual violence and intimate partner violence, and you end up with some horrifying science. So but how I, do you study a social problem if you can't list it as a social problem and say this basic thing is wrong and we're going to take an anti-rape perspective in this research project and you lose your credibility for doing that? It, it really shows you how power is entrenched in the creation of science. And I want to point out that, that my friend's father has a PhD in a social science field. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm glad that I'm not recording the video of this one. Uh, I... I <laughs> Honestly, I forgot to ask you if I could record the video of this one, so I didn't do it. Because you, people might see me, like... I, I've i been learning, like, studying more about, like, the, the anti-enlightenment movement of, like, the 1700s. Um, and becoming, like, increasingly convinced that I'm an anti-enlightenment scholar. <laughs> because, like, the obsession with, like, rationality and objectivity just, I don't think, is really realistic. And I've never thought about it the way that you just posed it where like a phd would say are you are you even a scientist because you're assuming that rape is bad like i feel my i feel nauseous honestly yeah like <laughs> that's yeah, that's <laughs> so on that's because if you can't if you're unwilling to make a value judgment on something like that then what are you as a social as a human being what are you even like there are so many i don't want to say lesser forms of violence but like tangential right like because now i could say i could hear that person say like well you want to eradicate lynching why you assume that lynching is bad well like who, who are you but then we know that there are people who there are 
all kinds of people who would say that. But like, right. how I mean, do you objectively? Oh my god! Right? <laughs> and I think sexual violence—you see it so vividly because I have really found it difficult to publish work on perpetrators, even though that's the that's the work that people are most interested in that I produce is around perpetrators. And one of the things that's difficult is so I, I wrote an article that has it's under review. The RNR is in. Fingers crossed. It does get published. Um, but, you know, it's been featured in the New York Times before it got published in a sociology journal. And the big pushback is I was interviewing men about how they were seeking consent or not. So it's that same study. Yeah. And the finding was that when you ask them using the word consent, they're like, oh, 100%. I get verbal consent every time. Consent is important. I, I would never, ever, ever. <laughs> but before that point in the interview, I had asked them to reflect on their most recent hookup and sexual events in a relationship and to say what signals were you getting from your partner that they were willing to do yeah. this that they are you know that this was all consensual but without saying the word consensual yeah 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 and then they were choosing things that were just mundane you know taking the earrings off would uh-huh. have been an example that fit into that category one of the most common ones was eye contact she made eye contact with me and so that's how I know um, this paper I mean it, it's been that like zombie paper of mine it's been out for years, just getting rejected over and over again. And one thing I've seen is that nobody actually takes issues with the findings. The, the findings section hasn't really changed since 2017. Yeah. And it hasn't been brought up in any of the reviews. The concern is about the framing. Is this an issue of rape? Or is this an issue of men getting confused around sex? And I felt very strongly based off of there's a very compelling literature that says that sexual violence is not miscommunication. Yeah. And so by pushing back to say, you know, it would be ascientific to pretend that this is just as simple as men don't understand how to go about having sex. Like, that's, that's a disingenuous way to read these findings and to frame them. Um, but a lot of reviewers took issue with it. And, you know, it would always be like one reviewer on each paper who says, but what if these men just, it's all an accident? I'm like, well, I'm not really talking about it one way or another, but I once got the feedback on that paper that the paper shouldn't even be about sexual violence. That it should just be about, like, how men prefer to communicate around consensual sex. And so in the paper now, you can see um, some of the ways that I compromised. Like, there are sentences in there that say, like, I am not accusing all of these men of rape. Like, there's literally a sentence that says, I presume that the vast majority of these men have never committed an act of sexual violence. It's like a sentence that is in the paper now. But it's funny because you could actually argue that that statement itself is not very scientific because I don't know. Yeah. To make a value judgment to say I'm not going to hold them accountable and I'm going to make clear here that I'm not accusing them of sexual assault. I don't have data for that either. Yeah. Right? But it just makes us more comfortable to yeah. read a paper that has that sentence in it. And I think even even making the argument that like how do you know that they weren't just confused? goes back to what we were talking about a second ago of just like defaulting to all men are dumb apes <laughs> right? <laughs> right like this is not like trying to watch like a monkey figure out how to use a computer or whatever you know what i mean yeah. like we're not like the science like that person is is kind of scientifically denying the men in your study any agency or humanity and I, I want to say, I don't think that this is good for men. I think that in a power relationship, it advantages men. Yeah. For all men to sort of get away with the ambiguity. And, and that's the claim of the paper, is that when what we consider to be consent is ambiguous, mm-hmm. men who want to commit acts of sexual violence can get away with it, and other men will back them up in their right to do it, because they'll be afraid they can be falsely accused, even though false allegations are so rare. And they, men believe in this mm-hmm. myth. That sexual assault is miscommunication, and if they just do the wrong thing once, they're going to end up in prison forever, which just isn't reality. Yeah. But it, it makes me think of I was riding a train once. Have you ever been on a train at a meal time, like one where you're going between cities? You don't get your own table; like they just sit you with whoever's around. Uh-huh. And it was during winter break, and so it was all college students. I, I yeah. ended up sitting at a table with three male college freshmen. Yeah, and I based off of my research interests, I asked them, like, what was your consent training like? How do you feel about this stuff? And they were petrified. All three of them had not had sex yet, and one of them literally said he never wanted to have sex because he was terrified that he would go to prison. And I just walked away from that conversation, like, this isn't helping him. Yeah. 
on an emotional or psychological <laughs> level. No. He thinks he's going to like accidentally rape someone, even though there's so much evidence that it's not true. And I have to tell you that as someone who studies rapists, you, I, I find it very easy to tell them apart from other yeah. men that I'm interviewing. Because <laughs> they, they are obsessed with power. Yeah. In, in, which is exactly what feminists have been arguing this whole time. It's what all of the science has been telling us this whole time. But they're obsessed with power in a way that is frankly unusual for any other participant. So during my dissertation research, I had a certificate of confidentiality. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that my work, at least on paper, cannot be subpoenaed. Yeah. And so my notes shouldn't be able to be used in criminal trials as evidence that a victim was conflicted about whether or not to call something sexual assault or that a perpetrator confessed to me mm-hmm. in an interview, yep. right? Which does happen. Mm-hmm. And when I read that section to any other participant, whether it was a victim, whether it was an administrator, um, they were just like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, that's fine. But when I read that section of the consent document to men who committed acts of sexual violence, and they did not all come into the study's perpetrators because... Perpetrator and victim are not exclusive categories. Some of them came into the study as victims as well. Um, And not just because they were making these false reports, but like some of them are authentically victims as well. But all of them were like, oh, that's so powerful. You must feel so powerful. One actually asked me about going to graduate school because he thought it'd be so cool to be able to say no to the courts. And that was what he wanted to talk about when his interview was over. And so like that reaction to me, I mean, again, this is not like a scientific finding at this point, but just as like the things that I keep in my toolbox to kind of get an impression of a participant from the beginning of our interactions, I'm like, okay, I associate that <laughs> with, yeah. I kind of know what's coming in this interview at this point, Yeah. Um, which is good to know. Yeah, yeah. They just feel so far apart from each other. That's so, yeah, I would, like when you said about power, like I, I was trying to predict like, where you're going to go, and I did not <laughs> land there. <laughs> no. I did not land and I actually, there. At the end of my dissertation, I looked over my research notes, not just from this study, but from other studies where I've done work with men, and I actually found that in all of the men that made some reference to committing a rape, and like they said to me that they had committed an act of sexual violence, all of them had that in common. Wow. <laughs> that's so... That's interesting. I mean, and like, it's just fascinating, like the ways that power and obsession with power manifests mm-hmm. and like I think a lot about like what are what are the differences between having like aspirations and being power hungry you know what I mean right. and I don't know like that's I never in a million years would have been like oh yeah that's so cool like I'm gonna I'm gonna do this voyeuristic research so then the then I'm gonna f- tell the judge that <laughs> you know stick it because you can't you can't have my notes like right. what a what a unusual that was <laughs> like power that like, was really startling interview yeah <laughs> yeah I mean that that participant actually came in as a victim yeah and one of the reasons that he wanted to participate in the study I mean people come to participate in sexual violence research for a lot of reasons the most common one is I don't understand what happened to me and yeah. I want to help other people understand what happened to them yeah he came in for a really different reason and his was that he had been sexually assaulted earlier that year and since then he had been feeling that he, he'd been really kind of obsessed with power and getting power back in a way yeah. that sometimes you do see in yeah. victims and male victims especially and that's how some of them will end up becoming perpetrators it's not the most common pathway but like it is a documented one in the yeah. research and he he sexually assaulted someone earlier that year and was really horrified by it uh-huh. and he came to the study hoping that he would get a referral to a counselor which yeah. he did yeah. um, of course <laughs> that's why IRB thinks about that kind of thing um but yeah, he knew that this was happening. He knew that this was happening to him and it fell out of his control, which uh-huh. made him want control even more. And he was really freaking himself out. Wow. Yeah, that's that's so interesting, right? Like Yeah. I just I I think like the the victim perpetrator dynamic in general is really interesting, like the crossover. Um yeah. but then once we get into like specific types of crime or specific types of violence especially then just like how these these power dynamics play out and like gender roles and, and like norms around masculinity mm-hmm. um, and how how a lot of men like don't cope well with this stuff is just it's so sad I mean it's really sad it really breaks my heart um, because then we can see like 
like how intergenerational transmissions of violence come into play and like trying to think of these guys struggling with identities as like being a father one day or an uncle or whatever like that's so it's so fascinating how how ingrained these this, this thirst for power is for some guys well, and I think it comes from a sense of not feeling like you have power, right? I yep. mean, that's the core component of hegemonic masculinity is it's unattainable. Mm-hmm. And so you've been told you have to be able to have this sense of ultimate power. And it, it's just not really possible yeah. in a society. And, I mean, <laughs> this is maybe a cynical way to think about it. But, like, everything that I know about masculinity and sexual violence, both from just reading other people's work and conducting my own work, the thing that's most shocking to me is that more men, don't end up engaging in these types of behaviors because it does seem pretty hard to resist. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't say that because I think that men are like inherently evil or, you know, whatever, like, you know, my MRA trolls might try to take that out of context to mean. What I mean is like, these are some pretty powerful dynamics and the perpetrators who I've interviewed, they don't, they certainly don't feel like they're in control. Yeah. They don't feel like they're in control and they are just as overwhelmed by what's happening around them. Yeah. As, I mean, anyone else who you've interviewed. And that doesn't let them off the hook at yeah. all. But it does It does talk about this from a sociological perspective. There's a lot of broader, big stuff going on. Yeah. You know, I'm teaching intro this semester, and we just read, you know, your classic intro, sociological imagination, C. Wright Mills text. And I'm thinking about this idea of problems that feel private but are actually public issues. And perpetration is absolutely one of those. Yeah. Yeah. A, an idea that I've I've been kind of kicking around for a study, and I I'll never get to it. So uh, if you or anybody else want to like just add me as a third author on this, <laughs> I will be I will be thrilled. Um, it, I'd be really interested to do something on like hero worship, right? So just like talking to people about who do they who would they consider to be their heroes? So like maybe last week there was something on Twitter that went viral about do do men have women who are heroes, right? Like, who are the yeah. women that men would look up to? And I, I don't know. I just think it would be interesting to see, to, like, to talk to men about who who would they say are their heroes. And, like, I know you would have a lot of guys. My bet would be, like, 90% would be, like, my dad, my grandpa. Right. Um, but then beyond that, who would they who would they say are their heroes? I bet a lot of them would would say the president. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, um, I bet you would have a lot of professional athletes, probably specific, a lot of professional athletes. probably specifically a lot of Derek Jeter, a lot of a lot of Peyton Kobe Manning, Bryant. Kobe Bryant. Yeah, definitely now, especially because Kobe's been lionized um, since yeah. his his passing. Um, and and like that would be interesting too, right? To like talk about the relationship between men accused of sexual violence and how they view celebrities who are accused of sexual violence too. I think would be itself like another. So there's another idea I'm releasing out into the world. Make me third <laughs> author. I'm happy to be third author. Uh, but just like how do they? A lot of guys would say The Rock. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm sure. Um, so I'd just be. It would be interesting to hear guys talk about the historical, political, entertainment figures that they would consider to be their heroes, and what is it about them that they they view as being heroic, right? Yeah. They make millions of dollars, he's a president, he has a ton of power, uh, right. he, he's very attractive, um, very physically fit, uh, I think there would be some, like, when you when you get guys who would listen, I wonder if guys would say like Brad Pitt or like Leonardo DiCaprio or like celebrities like that who are presumed to be like very sexually active. Because I, I yeah. would I would suspect that there would be like a lot of living vicariously, kind of through them, you know. The other thing I expect in everything you're saying is there also be some like insecurity or resentment. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. You know, it, I, I think it's a different than when I think about being a woman 
and the heroes that I've looked up to, like, I feel like I just get to emulate them. We're yeah. not in competition. <laughs> like, I can just sort of take the pieces from them that yeah. I think are impressive, and, you know, I can really yeah. I can really connect with something from their past and say, uh-huh. okay, like, I read Sonia Sotomayor's memoir, and uh-huh. she's from a working-class community, uh, working-poverty-class community, as am I. And there was this section in the book that really resonated with me about how having children watch TV, we assume it's always a bad thing. She's like, but that's more how I found out what a lawyer is. There were no lawyers in my community. And that resonated so deeply with me coming from my background. And there was no sense of it that was like, how did she get what I did? You know? Yeah, yeah. This is cool that I see, like, pieces of myself in this person. But when I think about men's relationship to heroes, there's some of that. And there's also a piece of, like, how dare he get so famous? Right. Why didn't that happen for me? Right. Like the, I mean that that would be like the Tom Brady effect, right? Like, yep. He wins all. He won all the time. Married to a supermodel, worth trillions of dollars, is has all these awards. Yep. Uh, can be embarrassingly goofy, uh, and not yep. have any kind of repercussions for it. Can go on TV and say like profoundly stupid things and have no repercussions for it at all. Right. <laughs> And and yet here I am viewing myself as this kind of unappreciated genius. My Facebook threads yeah. don't don't top out. I've never gone viral. Uh, yeah, like I think that'd be really cool to see. So yeah, my brother my brother's favorite book growing up was Treasure Island. Uh-huh. At least I think so. Maybe he's going to hear this. Correct me. <laughs> <laughs> he would always talk about. Uh, he's in you know Republican politics and. He talks about, like, how there's no Treasure Island now. He's like, there's nothing for me to go out and explore. Like, I was taught my whole childhood that I would go out and do something new and remarkable. And, like, now the closest thing I can get is, like, creating political signs. <laughs> like, it's just not the same thing as, yeah. you know, discovering a Treasure Island. And but so that's, he has that's this, not true. This, <laughs> your, <I know. laughs> your brother is wrong. Um, if, brother, if you're listening to this, you're <laughs> you're profoundly wrong about that. I mean, there's deep sea exploration and space exploration, right, as two massive frontiers. So if you're if you're looking at this purely from like a colonialist, neo-colonialist perspective, <laughs> there's there are vast treasures <laughs> waiting right. to I be mean, to be found. I agree, but, and I also think it was coming from a working class perspective, where yeah. there wasn't necessarily an expectation that we would be going to college. Yeah, so things like deep sea exploration and space exploration felt just so unattainable. Yeah. To us growing up. And so, for sure, yeah. I'm definitely showing my privilege there. Yeah. Yeah. I can see where he's coming from when it comes to, from that class perspective. Um, But the the thing that made me think of it was his favorite book from childhood, he's just so much resentment for. You know? (laughs) (laughs) I love this book, and also it led me to believe I would get this when I grew up, and it didn't happen. And so now I'm mad at the book. Yeah. Which is also (laughs) an old book when you would have been reading it, too. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think we mostly read really old books growing yeah. up. I think we, like, wanted... We felt like we were going to read the classics. When was that? I'm going to look up now when Treasure Island was published, just <laughs> purely out of curiosity. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, a piece of that is class, too, right? Because what books yeah. are available at your library? 1881. really old. <laughs> <laughs> That's really old. It was written in 1881, published 1886. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that book hadn't been true for several generations <laughs> by yeah, then. Yeah, I, mean, I think the book that he had, I remember it being a very rickety old copy. Yeah. Which makes me wonder if it was like, oh, one of the ways that we primarily got books as children was when libraries did free giveaways. Yeah. The books that were just like too tattered yeah. to have anymore. And so I wonder like, if that was how he got Treasure Island. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting, too. I feel bad about gossiping about your brother, but to, to say, like, the only tr- the only way to get to a treasure island was was political science? Like, that also seems... I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, yeah, I, don't, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know. I know that, like, we were raised really differently. We yeah. grew up in, like, a very, very traditionally gendered household to the point that we weren't really allowed to even play together as children. Oh, wow. Um, I had a little sister, too, and so mm-hmm. the girls were supposed to play with the girls, and then my brother was supposed to hang out with my dad. Um, so there's a lot about his biography that I don't really understand. Yeah. But gender <coughs> seems 
to shape a whole lot of it. Class seems to shape a whole lot of it. And, and masculinity. When I started doing this work, he was one of the main people I was talking to because he was, you know, had his feelings about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. His feelings about masculinity and how it all played into this. And, um, yeah, it's it's convoluted. It's difficult. And I have a lot of empathy. Yeah. I have a lot of empathy for that perspective. I also know how, you know, some of the stuff can be pretty problematic. We're talking yeah. about colonialism and masculinity, and this is mm-hmm. in a broader context about men's domination of women, right? Yep. <laughs> like, yeah. Yep. And just, what's going on here? Like, yeah, conflating uh, exploration with domination yeah. is is very tricky, right? And, like, all of the the popular narratives around that um, are are problematic in ways that people have trouble reckoning with or, like, don't want to reckon with. Um, that, I don't know, like, it's it's just, it's so fascinating ways that, like, pop culture stuff kind of socializes us to be, uh, at least socializes young boys to be, like, very dominant and yeah. always seeking power but in a very benevolent way. Right. 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 And I, I'm like now reflecting more about how, if the thing that you want as a young boy is to like have this conquest and explore an entirely new place and make it yours and then bring it to the world. Right. Yeah. That's the benevolent piece. Um, as problematic as all of that is, I'm not surprised that you turn to politics because when you think about places where you're seeing people make a difference, mm-hmm. like, my parents listened to conservative talk radio all the time in the car. Like, that was what we were just sort of around growing up. I'm not surprised that yeah. politics was He's like, these people feel like they're making a difference. People are listening to them. Yeah. I'm going to try this. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting, right? I mean, that goes into what everything we've been talking about, about the ways that powers come out. Um, so I had, I had told you that we could talk about your teaching, and we've spent does all this time... Uh, I've just totally lost track of time, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, this is actually really connected to what I was teaching today. Yeah. Since so much of... I mean, everything I'm doing on is online this semester. My entire class is online. And I decided to embrace that and have students do almost like an online ethnography over the 2020 election. Yeah. But before that, it felt like step one was, all right, how do we make sure none of you get radicalized? And, you know, how do we make sure that no one ends up in QAnon? <laughs> you know, these sort of things we have to think about now. And yeah. so today's lesson was actually all about the content that's around you and how it shapes you. And we were listening to the podcast Rabbit Hole was their mm-hmm. assignment, um, which is new from New York Times. It's very good. Recommend it to anyone who's looking for something on this topic where they actually follow someone who did get radicalized into the alt-right. And they just, like, look at his YouTube history. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> just all the way from 2015 on. Yeah. It's pretty cool. But it does seem like something we really have to be talking about when we're teaching online is this, it all feels so benign until you look at it collectively and you're like, wait, how did you get here? How am I now Uh listening to materials that are telling me that, you know, women are a bunch of, I mean, feminazis is kind of a dated term at this point, but I got called a feminazi on Twitter last week, right? Yeah. (laughs) this idea of like women are out to like put men in cages like I, like one of the clips literally is about forcing men back into the basement and it's like wait how do we get here like yeah. who's arguing that yeah I'm in my basement right now <laughs> <laughs> right well and I mean just these gross mischaracterizations of feminist yeah. work yeah 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 for sure no I've been thinking a lot about I mean so since we moved online in March, and I've, I've been hosting these teaching panels for this podcast, and, like, I'm, I have this idea for a spinoff project just doing, like, more panel discussions, kind of, like, yeah. dovetailing a little bit with the CrimCon stuff I've been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, anyway, I've been thinking a lot about, like, what is the purpose of education? People listening to the show are probably sick of me. This is probably, like, the sixth <laughs> week in a row you've had to hear me be like, what's the whole point of, <laughs> of what we do? <laughs> Because, like, we see so many people graduate college and are, like, kind of the antithesis of what a liberal arts education is supposed to be, right? Like, graduating from college with an anti-science attitude, uh, who adhere to all these, like, rape mythologies and um, are, are just beyond stubborn. Like, I don't even know what the language is to describe, like, 
that level of belief in in social and political things that we know number one are are not true, but number two that are extraordinarily harmful and toxic, um, and and make all of us make all of us suffer, right? And so I've just been thinking so much about like how how is education creating like oppressive systems and like replicating the status quo, and I think online stuff can definitely like make us better teachers. But then I also worry about like now people are just going to be like, well, I've heard there's this thing called YouTube, <laughs> and, <laughs> and maybe I should do something there. And I'm just going to do a search for my subject, and here's the first video that comes up. And you know, I don't know how to install an ad blocker on my computer, so uh, all the Trump re-election stuff is going to play, and that's going to lead me towards like automatically the algorithm is going to like send me towards more like you said, like QAnon stuff. Um, Because I don't think most people really understand how, like, algorithms work (laughs) for these things and how easy it is to, like, because the tech companies don't feel a sense of responsibility towards the material that they're promoting because ad dollars trump the First Amendment or whatever, trump public safety. And it's just so, it's just so interesting. Well, that brings you back to the masculinity component, too, because one of the reasons that people turn to places like YouTube is for a sense of companionship mm-hmm. after feeling very socially isolated, which is something that masculinity sort of bakes into culture for especially young men. Uh-huh. And so, you know, there's this sense of, I am I'm on my own out here. I need someone to make me feel a little better about this. I've been told that I was entitled to change the world by the age of 24. It didn't happen. <laughs> I am despondent, and, and uh-huh. understandably so, because you've been misled up until this point. I don't really have a strong social network because men aren't supposed to be too close to other men. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they'll be labeled queer, and we know that's supposed to be stigmatizing. Yep. And so this guy on YouTube is saying something that makes me feel better about all of this, right? Yeah. Like. That's exactly how it works, and there's a reason that, you know, the vast majority of domestic terrorists that are radicalized online are men, you know, yep. like, it's all very much connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a, a story that I tell in class, I tell it every semester, and I'm actually s- struggling with how am I going to do it this time around, um, about a friend of mine who passed away um, a few years ago, um, and so, like, it's a story of mental health and substance abuse stuff. Um, but I, I always tell them that, like, in the last conversation I ever had with him, I was I was really upset about something that was going on. Actually, another friend of ours had passed away. Um, and I, I got to tell my, my friend that I loved him um, before he died, and I'm so glad I got to. But I tell that story in class, like, you can hear a pin drop, right? Because, number one, professors aren't supposed to talk about this stuff, right? We don't have lives outside of the classroom. Uh, number two, I'm definitely not supposed to talk about, like, personal experiences with substance abuse and, and these things. But number three, I'm not supposed to admit out loud that I told another man that I loved him. <laughs> right? right? In a non-romantic, non-sexual way. And, like, right. the, the guys in class are, like, like, I, I don't know what their reaction is. Like, looking around, like, waiting for, like, a camera crew to, to jump in the room to, to, to be like, oh, surprise, like, you were on What Would You Do? or whatever. <laughs> it's so... To me, it's heartbreaking. When I was interviewing men about their sex lives and about the way that they were seeking consent and all of that, the question I got asked the most often after the recorder was off was, am I normal? Yeah. I've literally never spoken to anyone other than, like, someone I'm having sex with about this stuff. And they have reasons to lie to me and to be nice to me. And many of them broke up with me anyway, so it hurts. You know, maybe there's another issue they just didn't tell me. So am I normal? And a lot of the men who I interviewed afterwards, like, just talked about how pleasant it was to get to talk about this stuff. And one of them, I'll never forget, he was like, is this what it would be like to have a therapist? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, kind of. Kind of, yeah. He would be able to talk about personal issues. Also a really close friend. And I, so I TA'd for a class on terrorism, torture, and sexual violence, which was amazing. It was I'm amazing. Sure. It was such a cool experience. But we we had a unit on how terrorists are radicalized and specifically how lone wolf terrorists are radicalized. 
I happened to be the one lecturing that day, and I happened, it happened to be the day after the Las Vegas shooting. So it was just like kind of a really intense class to begin with. But, you know, the big thing is that it's often men who are isolated and who are just looking for connection. That's why they join these organizations. Not because they share the ideology, not because, you know, they come in, you know, inherently taking an anti-feminist or white supremacist lens. Like, they just want to be around other people. And so, whether that's online or in person, and so lots and lots of men in my class, especially first years, it was an introductory level class, came into office hours to just say, like, that really resonated with me. I'm supremely lonely, and what do I do? And so office hours turned into almost like a how to make a friend in class 101. And every time that a student came in and said something like that after the first few, I would, like, come back to class and say, hey, it happened again. Uh-huh. You all want to connect with each other. <laughs> so, like, for the first five minutes of class today, um, we're going to work in, you know, pairs or whatever, and, like, there, there's no objective. Yeah. Like, talk about your weekend. Like, I don't care what it is. But just try to connect. And I think, I mean, by the end of the semester, students said that it helped. Yeah. Um, I, I TA'd, we helped GSI in Michigan, but I TA'd for a professor who, her requirement for office hours was that students had to talk to each other while they waited. And she's like, some people got married off of that. And, you know, lifelong friendships are forming. But it's amazing how much of it has to do with isolation and yeah. how much of that comes from men not supposed to say things like, I'm lonely. I want a friend. Yeah. I need someone to talk to about a problem. Yep. Oh, it's so it's so sad. It is really so sad. Like what we do to to young men, um, even adult men, like even guys my age, right? Like you're not supposed to talk about it. Like I, I'm, I still have like that ingrained like growing up in the '80s and '90s like emotional reaction right now. Like like you're not supposed to have an emotional reaction to this. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I don't think that's gone away. Like as oh, much yeah. as we're talking about how this is changing and you know we have emotional competency standards in schools in some states now and things mm-hmm. like that um i don't know that it's changing as quickly as we, we wish that it did and you know my sister just had a, her first baby and she had a girl but like when, even when you have a girl everybody talks to you about boys <laughs> like immediately everybody was like so when are you gonna try for a boy and she's like wow i didn't realize that this still happened but I went and stayed with her for a couple of weeks after her baby was born because I was the only one in my family who could distance, who didn't, isn't working yeah. a mandatory, you know, yep. essential kind of work. And so I went and stayed with her. And and I like her. So there's that too. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be clear. Like, I also just like, really do love my sister. <laughs> and my brother, for what it's worth. Yeah. For what <laughs> um, it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> this is a little off topic at this point, but no, I didn't say that, that's cool. you know, at the time. But anyway... <laughs> Um, when I was staying with her, so many of our conversations after her friends came to visit and things like that was just like, wow, like these gender norms, as much as we thought we were making a lot of progress, really aren't all that different. And we have a long way to go. There's a reason that the college students in our classes today are still struggling with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like we still have a really long way to go. Oh yeah. No, when, uh, when my second daughter was born, well, when my, when my students found out that I was going to be a dad both times, they were... Like, the guys wanted to, like, kind of, like, pal around with me some. Like, they I, they had clearly been socialized by, like, sitcoms, right? Like, they they were expecting me to bring... Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they thought I was going to bring cigars to class or something like that. <laughs> and um, when we found out... So, like, the like the science advanced so much between, between uh, pregnancies that we could find out way earlier with, with our second daughter. Um... And so, before we found out, they were like, do you want to have a boy now? And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> and they were like, they were like, why? And I said, why would I? <laughs> why, why would I? You know, like, I know how much it sucks to be, to be a guy and not have, like, all this emotional freedom, right? right. And creative freedom and all these other things that I personally really value as, as um... And so I had guys who, like, got kind of upset with me about that. Um, I had guys tell me in class, like, like flat out, I had a guy tell me that uh, he felt sorry for me for having two daughters. Wow. Oh, yeah, and I put on this I put on this big production about, like... Yeah. So, like, in that... The way that classroom was set up, I was able to, like, walk around him specifically 
and I was like, can you feel that right now? There are, they are here. There are generations of last name women in this room right now, and I can I can sense that they are they are working their their womanly magics on you, <laughs> and you are only going to have <laughs> daughters if you ever have children. And he was like mortified um, because I don't think he expected me to have. And like the the women in class were just like disgusted with him, right? Um, and it was just such a strange, like I had, I had guys come into my office hours to be like, well, I would never, I hope I never have a daughter. Like, but why, why would you say that? Why would you? (laughs) It's so interesting because I think, I don't know that anybody's happy with where they fit in the gendered order, right? Because, like, as you're saying this, I've, I've heard similar comments from women saying, like, I would never want to have a girl because, like, I know what I've gone through as a woman, yeah. right? And then, I, I don't know how people make decisions necessarily oh, yeah. about, like, what they think is the desirable gender. Yeah, 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 yeah. They prefer, in general, I think people prefer boys is what the data show. But yeah. But it just, to me, like, all these conversations on gender and children, it's just a reminder yeah. that, like, it's, this is not working. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure, it. yeah. And it feels like such a major thing to say, uh-huh. okay, I'm not just having a baby, but I'm going to have a boy or a girl. Depending on yep. that, the life of that child and that life of me, like, of a parent, yeah. will be forever changed. And my relationship with them is predetermined by, like, the gender assumptions I'm making about their biological sex, right? Yeah. So I would talk to students about like, well, I don't want to have a, I don't want to have a son because I never had those like, this is how you be a man conversations with my own dad, and right. so I don't think I could, I don't know how I, I would even do that, right? That's funny because I think <laughs> the the men who had those conversations with their dad, a lot of them will probably walk away and say like, it might be better that you didn't have the conversation <laughs> because. It was stressful, you know? Yeah, yep. That was something that came up in my research a lot, was, like, the sex talk that men were getting from their fathers. And it's so loaded with expectations around what they're supposed to be doing and how they're supposed to be behaving. And Uh I I think that a lot of them, especially the sophomores in the study, were in just such a... They were in a sadder place, I think, than other students. Because a lot of them... A story I heard over and over again. You have these young men going to college... They were in a relationship in high school with a girl who they were in love with. They adored her. But you're yep. supposed to go to college, hook up with a lot of people, explore new things. So they break up with their girlfriend. And then that doesn't happen for them. Yep. They're expecting to have sex with a different person every week. And we, we know that that is not how it yep. actually works. Yep. For the vast, vast, vast majority of people on college campuses. And so... They were feeling like, I felt misled by these sex talks. I felt misled by this, like, this is the way I'm supposed to behave. And I could have still been with my girlfriend, who... And the reason this often came up is they were talking about their exes, which is something I didn't think about in my study methodology by saying, tell me about the last time you had sex in a relationship. I was talking about a lot of breakup sex. Yeah. Because a lot of these relationships were over. And so, like, a lot of the men were crying, talking about how, like, I still could have been with her if not for these other men who, like, told me that I was supposed to break up with her yeah. so that I could hook up a, a lot in college and then like the next question is about their hookups and they're like no it wasn't even I didn't even enjoy that <laughs> if I had one at all and so it, it's so funny because I think that men who didn't have like that strong masculine figure or whatever growing up feel like they missed out and the men who had it are like I don't think that worked out great for me yeah. you know most of the time there are certainly exceptions but I mean all of us are messed up by our parents in our own uniquely gendered ways <laughs> Very true. And I think that's a good spot to end here. I've taken up <laughs> enough of your time. The whole podcast brings us to, like, our parents messed us up. <laughs> it's so insightful. No one's ever heard that before. I know. You're, you're cutting-edge research. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, your work is incredible. Um, I wish you well in, once you get back to the dissertation. I love these. I love doing these recordings because we started off with just like cross-sectional data sucks, and then <laughs> all of a sudden <laughs> the data problem, and then we end up talking about this broader stuff. I mean, that's why you become a sociologist, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We don't understand people, and <laughs> right <laughs> need to talk about people. 
Yes, I mean, that's exactly it. Wanting to understand people better, and, you know, one of the nice things about sociology is you understand a process in one setting, and you can apply it often in more places than you would have expected. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Thank you so much for, great. for coming on. <laughs> I, yeah, Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So uh, I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. (laughs) So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.